action. Welcome to Torn Stubbs, the Trash Movie Podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcast at Trash, which can be found at movetotrash.co.uk and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. Heat is an LA-based crime thriller directed by Michael Mann. Robert De Niro heads up a crack team of very successful bank robbers who accidentally leave behind a clue during a botched heist that allows LA police detective Al Pacino to begin honing in on them. Soon, the pressure of the hunt means that both sides begin to feel the heat. This is one of those films that I've always wanted to watch. It's been on my list for ages and I don't know why I've never put it on. It's always on those top 100 lists from Empire Magazine and the AFI and the BFI and the BFG. Everyone says... (laughs) (laughs) Everyone says this film is brilliant. Did you know much about it when you sat down to watch it? So I knew, like you, I knew that there was this kind of big uh, thing about it. Everyone seemed to think it was the best thriller ever made. Mm. Um, I know that it inspired uh, Christopher Nolan with the Dark Knight trilogy in terms of its mood and and imagery. Yes. Um, And I had, I mean, I say I'd seen it. I hadn't really because I'd watched it late one night when... It was like when I was about 17 or 18, my cousins from America had come over and they were super, super jet lagged. And they were like, oh, let's watch a film. And they put heat on. (laughs) Put a three hour movie I know. And I was like, (laughs) and at the time I thought it was the longest film I had ever seen because I was so tired. And I I have very little memory of it because I was like kind of trying to stay awake. And I kept saying, well, who's that? And who's that? And they were like, well, obviously it's so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so and no, I hadn't really, I hadn't seen it because I had no memory really of, of it. So whatsoever. for all intents and purposes, this is your first viewing. My first viewing when of you're paying heat. attention. I'd never seen it. This was my first oh. viewing. So going into it, I knew that it is heralded as Michael Mann's masterpiece. In the same way that Godfather Part Two is heralded as Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece, this is Michael Mann's. I mean, if you if if people said, "Who is Michael Mann? What does he do?" You show them Heat. And you get a a very, very clear idea of the talent of Michael Mann. And I knew that it featured Robert De Niro and Al Pacino together on screen in a scene, in a film, for the very first time. They Mm. obviously had been in The Godfather Part 2 together, but because Al Pacino was playing the son and Robert De Niro was playing his father, but in flashbacks they, as actors, never portrayed the characters in the same room. Mm. Al Pacino would act against Marlon Brando in the first film, and in the second film, Marlon Brando's character has already died because he died in the first film. Spoiler, spoiler. Those films are 40 years old. If you haven't watched them now, you never will. I haven't watched them, but I will at some point. You've never watched the Godfather trilogy? I've seen the first Godfather, and I loved it. You will love the second one then, because it amps it up. Everyone says that, but I just need to actually just sit down and watch it. Had you watched much Michael Mann before? I'd seen Manhunter a long time ago. The best Hannibal Lecter movie. And I didn't really like it. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) God. This was a while back. I can't remember. I I don't know why I didn't like it, um, but I didn't. And I... So after after that, I'd seen Collateral. I'd seen... 
Uh, Which is decent enough. I really liked Collateral. Yeah, I, I mean, there's some weird sound issues. And you know me, I love it when Tom Cruise mm. steps away from being Tom Cruise. I love watching him play a character yeah, and I can as remember opposed to Tom Cruise. He's called Vincent in it because that's how impactful he was. I remember his name in the film. Dyed, um, bleached, white hair. And he's the villain. Yeah. Yeah, when he's is great. he ever the villain? Very, very rarely. Yeah. And he's great in it. Mm-hmm. Um, last time Mohicans I saw way too young and it traumatised me because there's like a whole scene where someone gets killed with an axe or something is that Michael Mann last of the Mohicans yeah yeah he did oh. that that was a film he made before he did Heat right and that's with um, um, Mr. Actor himself Daniel yes, Day-Lewis yeah he also did Public Enemies about 10 years ago the yeah. the Johnny Depp gangster movie his first film shot on pure digital Michael Mann. Michael Mann, oh. yeah. Because, you know, look at this film. It's sumptuous. Mm. And Manhunter's even more mm. of a, a sumptuously visual movie. Yeah. Public Enemies, uh, I think, proves that Michael Mann doesn't necessarily work in a digital realm. No, because Black Hat I turned off. That was quite recent, wasn't it? That was 2015. And yeah. I started it. And I think I watched half an hour and I was just like, nah, this just isn't for me. So I turned it I'd off. I'd never heard of it. On my other podcast, I had a filmmaker on called David O'Reilly, who also works as a location scout for Lucasfilm. He scouted locations for Michael Mann on that. So that's the only time I've ever heard of that film. I don't remember it coming out. Maybe it's one of those films that they well, bury. I only, I, only know, I only knew it came out because I worked on the copy on Total Film. When we, were right, when we were talking about it. so He seems to have moved into a bit of a Paul Schrader situation, Michael Mann, where he's very well respected, but yeah. only for his older stuff, he doesn't seem to be given the chance now. I know, that's the thing, isn't it? He's got this name that everyone recognises as this kind of great filmmaker, but yeah. what's he even doing? Nothing. He's doing what's he it. been allowed to do? Yeah. But this, I was genuinely surprised at how amazing it is. <laughs> because... You know, when people say Heat is the greatest thriller or it's on the AFI's list of 100 greatest movies, the hype can often ruin it for you. Mm. Like I held off from watching The Shawshank Redemption for years because people kept saying, you're into film, Robert. You haven't seen The Shawshank Redemption. How can it possibly compete with that kind of hype? Yeah. So I always said, I'll only watch it if I stumble on it on television or if I just happen to stumble on it on on you know a streaming service or whatever and i was around at a mate's house and he was like should we watch movies i was like yeah and he was like how about shawshank and i was like yes because i'm stumbling on it and you loved it it's, it's all right i mean i've oh, never watched man. it again it's kind you of should. Medi- you should. kind of mediocre really no, you should but watch it again. this the, the heat behind heat oh my lord how many it, times did they say the word it, heat in this film seriously it lived up to it it okay. lived up to the heat i was really happy with it what about you I could tell it was a very well-made film and, um, you know, shot amazingly and everyone in it was on, you know, top of their game. Mm -hmm. I just don't find Robert De Niro or Al Pacino interesting. In the film or in general? In general. Oh, really? watching this, I just didn't find them interesting. I didn't find the characters interesting. I found Al Pacino kind of pantomime and over the top, which he obviously is. Um, and I found Robert De Niro boring. And I, I just kind of, I really, really wanted to love this film because I know it's got such a a huge kind of following and people love it and praise it all the time. But I don't know, I just feel like I didn't really get it. I feel like, I feel like it was 
bit just kind of a bit pretentious and just a bit kind of too austere for like what it was doing was it the coldness that you weren't connecting with because it's an incredibly for a film that's called heat Mm. it is an incredibly cold movie and i'm not just talking about the fact that the color palette is lots of grays and lots of like really pale blues and for a film set in la you don't get that warm la sun it's very it's a very muted film but tonally and characteristically those characters are really cold to each other even in those moments where you're meant to be believing that robert de niro is falling in love with the girl from the diner it's really cold yeah i think yeah i just didn't like that they were alpha males and I just don't really find alpha males that interesting. I just didn't really care. And I just didn't... I think fundamentally I didn't understand why they were doing what they were doing. Why? So it's about obsession. It's about to- toxic masculinity and it's about obsession. So why were they so obsessed? Why was De Niro even a, a career criminal? Why was he so determined to do this for a living? I just read that they had found their groove in life. Mm. They were doing what they were good at, mm. which is why I feel that those characters are in their 50s. Okay. Like, if it was made now, it would be about a rookie cop chasing a a young criminal mastermind, and it would be like The Rock against, I don't know, probably Bill Skarsgård. (laughs) Yeah. Because he's the hot new up-and-coming actor. But the fact that Al Pacino was in his mid-50s and Robert De Niro is a couple of years either younger or older, but they're roughly about the same age... Those characters have been doing this for life. Hmm. There's so much experience there. So they've clearly found their groove. And they don't feel like they're stuck. They actually have a very precise way of working. Like Robert De Niro, he says, like, we've got 80 seconds, 80 seconds left. He knows from experience he's got 80 seconds until the police even begin to start forming themselves to arrive at the scene. Got to get out of there. So he knows there's, a, there's a, like a military precision there. Mm. And with Al Pacino, he's an incredibly good cop. Mm. He skirts the line between good cop and bad cop himself. I just thought that there were moments where they they almost became supernatural. Like there's, there's a bit where they start doing their heist and Robert De Niro hears a noise in fucking LA, which is a huge city and it's busy and people are going to make noises. And he's like, no, no, we go, we go, we go, we go now. And it's like, uh, what? But, but is that not a gut feeling for him? He's been doing this for years, so he knows. Wait, so if it's a gut feeling, he knows that LA is a, a busy city, and you're going to hear some noise if you're trying to break into somewhere. Mm, potentially, then, like Al Pacino knows he's being watched when he's taking those pictures, and it's like, oh, come on! Like, how did you know that? Again, gut feeling. Don't surely the police know these sort of things? They just get a feeling, and I. That scene you were talking about where Robert De Niro hears that noise, there's this wonderful moment that teases the audience where Robert De Niro is looking into like the, the landscape with all the, 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 the trucks and everything. And he's just by chance looking towards the camera that they've got up, set up, looking at him. And there's, it's cutting between Robert De Niro peering into sort of the landscape and Al Pacino looking at him peering into the landscape on the monitor and they're cutting back and forth, the filmmakers, and it looks like they're looking at each other, and it looks like they're appearing in the, the scene together. Mm. It's teasing the audience. These two have never been in a scene together. 
we're teasing you. This is not happening. We are teasing you. That mm. doesn't happen until later. And I actually thought that scene was going to be right at the end. I thought that was going to be the combination that they meet. It's not. It's halfway through it's when they actually middle. meet. It's bang in the middle. It's the yeah. turning point. Because mm. now the cop and the robber have seen each other and it, it cranks up the heat. It cranks up. Well, now I know who you are. And now I know what you're going to do. I can't take you down because we haven't got enough evidence. We can't arrest you. Mm. You haven't, you know, you've broken, you've entered, what's it called? Breaking and entering, but you haven't stolen anything. So it's not really breaking and entering. I can't do anything with you, but I'm going to get you if you step out of line. And the other guy, Robert De Niro is like, well, if you try and get me, I'm probably going to have to kill you. And it's very polite and it's very Mm. respectful. There's a real theme of gentlemanly respect here. You know, they have a particular way of doing things. They don't murder. Unfortunately, there is a murder. I think it's Danny Trejo. No, it's not Danny Trejo. It's the other guy with the shit hair. The the scruffy looking guy. He breaks the rule. Yeah. And because of that, that's the the inciting incident. That's the piece of evidence that is left behind. Mm. That the cops can then work on that to get towards the robbers. So there's a particular way of doing things. And there's a particular idea of respect that's why Al Pacino holds Robert De Niro's hand at the end when he shot him he doesn't feel that it's respectful to let someone die on his own but also it's a way of them both saying good game well done that's that's very respectful (laughs) yeah I can see that and the film is very clever I can see why Christopher Nolan loves this film because it is kind of precision uh, it's like clockwork precision it's also just as cold as him yeah exactly and um but it very cleverly kind of almost backwards kind of mirrors the two men. So when Al Pacino's marriage is kind of slowly crumbling, Robert De Niro is falling in love and it it kind of does a very clever thing with the way that their lives are kind of backwards mirroring each other. Which is weirdly what The Godfather Part 2 does. Oh, really? While Al Pacino's character in the 50s is... He starts off really powerful as as the boss, but then his life begins to crumble. His family life begins to crumble. Mm. Mirrored with the flashback of his father, played by Robert De Niro, in sort of twenties and thirties America. Uh, actually, it's probably it's probably earlier than that. Actually, coming up through the um, sort of the slums where the immigrants lived when they first came to America, the Italian immigrants, and he's rising to power and forming a family. Mm. So. It's, it's a clever, it's weird it's a very that clever narrative. It's weird device. that they've chosen that for for Heat and chosen those two actors. Yeah, there's a lovely moment when Robert De Niro goes into that diner with the the scene where he meets that girl, and she's asking him, "Oh, what book are you reading?" And he's really standoffish, hmm. and the camera's behind them. They're sat at the the diner um, counter. They're not in a booth, and. The camera's behind them and he's really standoffish. And when she says, oh, I've I've just seen you in in the store. I work in whatever the store is. And his guard begins to drop and he sort of leans over the chair that's in between them to offer a handshake. Hello, hello. As he does that, as he drops his guard, the camera tracks right. So we then see them from the front. Mm. We're seeing them from, you know, their their front. It's as if we are seeing a different side of him. Mm. It's genius genius that's visual storytelling that's the that is the talent of michael mann it's not flashy it's not like quentin tarantino whipping the camera around and having the colors change Mm. it's just really fucking subtle and he does that throughout the whole thing 
I, I kept thinking that this film is the perfect blend of technique and subject matter. Mm. We're only shown what we need to see. There's no fat on this movie. It's the the editing in particular is so economical. We are shown what we need for just the, the right amount of time, like a military operation. And that's how those bank robbers work, mm. in and out. It reminded me of the the bank robbers from Point Break, but less chaotic. It's very much get in, yeah. get out. And that's that's what the, the editing does as well. Mm. I just... I just really didn't <laughs> just didn't engage with it. I just found it a su- the last hour in particular was such a struggle. I felt like it it did like as you were as you were talking about in the Great Gatsby episode about how films should kind of like move upwards towards a peak and then drop off once it's hit that peak to give to give breathing space yeah. and then allow it to build up again. Like this film does that perfectly, but um I just felt like the big moments happened and then there was other stuff happening that I just didn't care about. Like what? Like, ugh. so then, then Natalie Portman, little, little old Natalie Portman yeah. is found like in a bathtub having slashed her wrists or having something. Having disappeared from the movie for an hour and a half. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just a bit like, oh, that just feels too baggy. I just, I feel like. Did she do that to herself? Because I read it as the mob had found her. Oh, and really? left her as a, um, a warning. Oh, or does she do it to herself? Because that like was she unclear. She was seriously depressed the whole way through the film. I felt like that's what we was were being she? Told. I just saw her as I just saw her as a sulky teenager. I didn't see her yeah. as suicidal. You know, potentially take her own life. Yeah. But I think he does allow. I think he allows scenes to breathe, even in even in like individual moments, like in the scene where they use a bomb to blast off the door of the um, the armoured vehicle that they've, they've knocked onto the side with the big van. Mm-hmm. So they use a bomb to, to blast the door off. There's this wonderful moment where the truck driven by, I think it's Val Kilmer, he drives the truck into the other one and knocks it over. He allows everything to just settle. And there's this blue ribbon that falls <laughs> off. Uh, some uh, I think it's a car lot it is a car lot Mm. he just allows that to flicker down then he whips the guys into action and they use a bomb to blast the door off and he just keeps it he keeps it grounded in reality in the sense that the the shock wave from the blast of the bomb shatters the glass of about five parked cars and he doesn't then cut to the glass tinkering to the floor it's just a case of this is what would happen in reality Let's get on with the film. And the film is very much based in reality. Oh, yeah. Like the, the shots of L.A. Like it was all shot in L.A. There's like I could 65, imagine, yeah. 65 filming locations, not a single soundstage. Wow. It's all authentic. Even when they shot the, the, dinner, the cafe scene where De Niro and Pacino go for their coffee. Yeah. Um, they oh, actually used, they used real... The waiting staff in, in, the, in the cafe was, were the real waiting staff. Um, and there's some amazing shots of like he has an amazing kind of depth of frame. So when I think it is it when De Niro first meets uh, John Voight. John Voight's hair. What the fuck? <laughs> anyway, so when he first meets him, there's yeah. like L.A. in the background. There's like an L.A. highway in the background. Mm. And there's always that kind of you've always got L.A. just like, you know, in the background there. And that's how you shoot a city. You don't shoot a city the way that 
fucking Baz Luhrmann shot New York in but, The Great Gatsby. But there's a difference there. The Great Gatsby was a CGI exactly. recreation. So yeah. you can put whatever you want wherever. Yeah. Michael Mann is working with a real city in a real way in yeah. reality. Yeah. Even the gunshots. I mean, we live in a mm. very... We live in a particular time where the news will broadcast at length real gunshots in real cityscapes because like I keep thinking of Paris they kept showing the scenes and you could hear the particular way that guns sound and how they echo and bounce off of buildings mm. the the relentless gunfire in this film wasn't movie gunfire it sounded like those Paris shootings mm. they it sounded like those gunshots in Paris it's a real dull boom boom mm. boom boom it's not movie booms it's realistic yeah. well because they shot they shot the sound they filmed they actually caught the sound of the during filming it's not added in oh yeah they use that for real but they didn't have to did they they didn't have to yeah, keep yeah. those sounds no, they yeah, could have put in the uh the, choice. the movie sounds yeah they could have put in whatever they wanted yeah i think he... it's just it's a really really genius and very subtle decision yeah well because he's he's aiming for authenticity yes and you know he based this on where he was inspired by um, his friend who was a Chicago detective who died in action. And so he kind of, he knows what that world is like through, I assume, through his friend. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it feels authentic. It feels like they are in this kind of 90s wasteland LA. And that's the interesting thing about the fact that it is the 90s because um, nowadays, because we're so now entrenched in technology and we're so reliant on it for everything that when you see a film like Heat that is 95, um, it it feels almost like a different world. It feels almost like kind of like the Wild West where you can't just get on your mobile phone yeah. and be like, oh, I'm on, I'm on the street corner, come get me. If you're running for your life, you are fucking running for your life. Mm-hmm. And that gives this like a real power that I think you wouldn't necessarily get if it was shot, if it was set and shot nowadays. Yes. It's got this kind of like bandit wasteland kind of feeling to it even though they didn't have mobile phones and even though he has a old school television he kicks out the car at one point it didn't feel 90s to me it feels really fresh Hmm. i I felt like it could have been it could have come out this year i guess so i don't know i think i guess i knew it was the 90s but you know they were paging each other yeah and um you know they had stopwatches and all that kind of stuff well, so, um, at the end of Avengers, uh, Samuel L. Jackson pages Marvel Girl, whatever it is. Yeah, Captain but that's because she's in the 90s. So he's paging her through time? I think so. I think that's what's going on there. Powerful page. Yeah, I know. Let's talk about Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. For the first half an hour of the film, I was thinking, God, Al Pacino's been really well behaved and he's been... <laughs> It's like old school Al Pacino. It's he's not, you know, he's he's being um he's not uh, being Scarface. Well, yeah, but he's like he's not being the big I am. He's being really subtle like he was in The Godfather. Um he was like being Michael Colleone. And then he started shouting and singing. Oh uh, yeah. But it's 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 weird. It, even though it's Al, Al Pacino, it fits. It's just great. I love this. She got a great ass. And you got your head all the way up it. 
<laughs> the big eyes and the big hands. Yeah. He's genius. I could, but I could listen to him read the men, every menu on justeat.com and just love it. I could listen to him read the phone book. He's got such a, like a lilt and such a pattern to his vocals. It's not too dissimilar to Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken. Yeah. Yeah. Not too dissimilar. Yeah. In, in like... Recognisable. Yeah. I mean, their rate. accents are different, but their patterns are kind of... It's weird. It's like John Malkovich. The emphasis is always on the wrong word. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And I love it. It's, it's very yeah. operatic. I could listen to it. Whereas Robert De Niro is very quiet. And he Growly. looks... He looks great. He's trim. He looks much better than he did in Goodfellas, which was five years previous to this. Yeah. This is probably his peak, I imagine. This was the year after Casino. So this is, everything from here is downhill. This yeah. is Rocky and Bullwinkle and Fockers. And he even, he wasn't doing his usual, you know, the corner of the mouth go mm. down. So, circle of trust, Fokker. That kind of shit. Dirty grandpa. Dirty, yeah. This yeah. is him. This is what he's good at. These quiet, mm. subtle characters where it's all in the eyes. It's very subtle. He might even just look slightly to the side and you know what he's going to do. You mm. know. I just, oh, I just, I could tell that they're good actors. I just don't find them interesting. Even in the diner scene. I thought that was good, but only because of the dialogue. I thought the dialogue was great. And that kind of, the dance that they had together yeah. was great. Um, is it true that they added that in? Is that, or is that just one of those kind of movie legends? What do you mean? Well, everything's added in. That scene, that they, that they specifically wrote that scene because they realised that they had not a scene together. <laughs> yeah. If they did, then it's it's only a positive. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's, shot, it's shot really well in the sense that it's just very simple over-the-shoulder shots because if you mm. have two acting legends like that, you let them act. Mm. And the camera picks it up. Mm. Don't need fancy shots. You know, one from above, one from below. Moving, tracking, dolly in. Just two over-the-shoulder shots because you're going to get everything you need from their performance. And they do. And there's a lovely moment at the very end of that scene where the dialogue is over and the sound suddenly come lifts, Mm -hmm. lifts back. And you realise that all of the chatter and the bustle of the restaurant has been muted down. Um, it's very, very effective. Because the most important thing in that scene is those two. And it's not yeah. just the fact that it's Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. It's the fact that these two characters, which seem to be linked somehow, one's the cop, one's the robber. It's a cat and mouse. The cat and the mouse have suddenly met. Mm. It, that is the important. That's, it's the hinge of the film. Mm. And whoever was acting in it, that, that scene is still really important, which makes me think that it was all, always in the script. I think it must have been because it was pivotal. Yeah. And it's banging. It's an hour, 28 minutes in. It's like that moment where they are recognizing each other and the stakes are delivered then. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to kill you. You're going to kill me. And like Robert, and Robert De Niro says, there's a flip side to that kind of there's thing. A flip side. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing that did have me howling was... was um, when Al Pacino says, who, what you fucked an owl? That was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, is that Hank Azaria? When he's like, who, who or something? Hank Azaria, he never does enough movies. He's, I all, know. he's really good at playing 
pathetic, weedy little yeah. shit. Snivelling. Snivelling little assholes. Yeah. Was Al Pacino's character an asshole? He was... Was he an asshole? Um, Define an asshole. I don't know. He kind of... Was he uncaring? Yes, he was very neglectful. He was... From what I could tell... That's the, that was the thing, was there was a shot towards the end of the film where he's, he sees, or he's in LA and there are all the kind of regular people around. Oh, it's when he's, when he's at the bus stop and he kicks the TV out on the bus stop. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, do you, do you recognize that the people you are sacrificing your marriage and your home life and your personal life for are these people on the street? And I suppose he does, because when he's chasing De Niro and they're outside the shop and there's bullets flying around, he's telling everyone to get down. Yeah. So he does know that, but it's... um... Do you think he was a caring person and he's he's got skewered because of the job? Yeah, maybe. Like, all I can... The only thing I can relate it to is, in my life, if I choose not to go out and have drinks with a friend... I stay in and write because all I can think about at any time of the day is writing. Oh, really? And I'm like, do I go out and have a drink? Oh, well, if I don't go out and have a drink, I could sit at home and get another thousand words down. Yeah. And I guess the choice is, uh, the choice is now not become a choice for Pacino's character. He has decided that he is going to just going to get the words down and he's not going to worry too much about the other things happening in his life, which are, equally if not more important yeah you know he's been married three times um i do love that i mean the the script is fantastic and the dialogue is to die for and there's that moment where he's having the conversation with his wife and she very I, i think even though the film does kind of go men's lives are exciting and dangerous and life or death every day and something exciting is going to happen and women are sitting around waiting for them looking after the kids not doing anything exciting and that while that is true the film at least doesn't turn the women into whiny desperate attention-seeking kind of wet rags yeah everyone's very very well-rounded what they say is entirely justified so she says to him you know, we're supposed to be sharing a life together, blah, blah, blah. This is not sharing its leftovers. Yeah. That's a fantastic line. And she's in, she's completely entitled to say that. So even though the women aren't particularly interesting or have particularly interesting lives, they do at least talk sense and they feel like real people. So I think underneath all that macho bravado bullshit that Al Pacino displays, he's incredibly caring. He doesn't want that mother to see the prostitute daughter completely cut up. Mm. And he doesn't want the child to die in that gunfire. Yeah, by the way, how did that kid even know that he was safe? How did who know? The kid who just who got dragged off by... Um... Al Pacino? No, the, yeah, before that. So the, the bad guy picked him up so he had a shield, right? Yeah, who was that? That was one of the bad guys. That was Tom Sizemore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so the scene where Tom Sizemore grabs the kid as a shield, yeah, and then he gets shot down, and then Al Pacino runs over and then grabs the kid. How does the kid not know he's being used as a shield again? He doesn't. He doesn't. But... I, would, I would be like, ah, get the fuck off me, old man. <laughs> or potentially in so much shock, you just get lifted up and carried away by the Maybe. smallest man with a gun ever. <laughs> he was when he's like doing his grand, like, this is what happened. It's like, you're the tiniest little man <laughs> surrounded by giants. Hey, he's a little man with a massive 
bite and a big bark. <laughs> but he also loves his stepdaughter. He does. The thing is, he like he cares for people when there's distance. So he he cares for the mother whose prostitute daughter has just been killed because he has no real personal commitment to that person. Mm. You know, he can say, oh, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, you'll be fine, you'll be fine, and then goodbye. Um, And that's kind of like a a huge flaw in his character where as soon as he has any commitment to them, he, um, that's when it all goes wrong. But on the flip side, do you think Robert De Niro is a naturally caring character? I don't know enough. I don't think we're given enough about him. I suppose what happens at the end tells us he is because he sacrifices his his supposed love to yeah. save her to protect her yeah keep he, her anonymous he, he walks yeah but he says he's done that before and you have to mm. get very i can't remember like attuned to it or something mm. or used to it you have to mm. be prepared to sacrifice if i was her i'd be like where are you going what, are you, what? Hang, <laughs> well hang she on, didn't look particularly pleased or or surprised she looked confused yeah i'm pretty sure yeah she i mean she was stood there and i thought maybe al pacino would have recognized that he was looking at her mm. but there was far too many people in the way who did you want to survive well that's the thing that that cat and mouse i thought was genius there was no score in that film it was all the, you know the lights and the noise of the planes coming over and i don't know if i i, I don't know if i was rooting for for anyone mm. you know that you feel like the good guy has to win like the law has to win yeah, I guess I, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I, I couldn't predict which way it was going. And at one point I was thinking, De Niro's got him. Because that plane was coming over and he was exposed between the two blocks. He was completely lit up. Mm. And then Al Pacino saw the shadow and then boom, boom, boom. That, he got that him. That scene, that's when you kind of go, Jesus, that's a filmmaker who has taken his time to craft and mm-hmm. kind of curate what he is actually shooting yes i had no idea that there were air uh, like airstrip runway lights that lit up only when a plane comes into land i had no idea that it was is that actually a thing i don't know i assume it is i don't know i've never i've always well, but, i've always had my eyes shut when well, yeah, the planes exactly. land. <laughs> oh, God. I, hate, I hate flying i'm glad but yeah, but there that, are those lights. i guess that comes through research and maybe yeah yeah that I means it definitely comes through research so meticulously thinking about how he's going to visually shoot a film how mm-hmm. you know what he's going to do with that scene and but that also, is a very important but also scene. again down to editing what does he show us mm. when and and for how long mm. this is not a film that you can make straight off the bat this is you know michael masman had been making films for like 15 years at this point this is definitely a a you know not your sophomore film this is your 10th film yeah yeah he's... this is inception in yeah, terms right. of um, Christopher Nolan. Progression, yeah. yeah. But then Christopher Nolan, I think, has has kind of surpassed that in terms of, like, what's Michael Mann done since Heat? Uh, like, yes, actually, but... Like, everything in t- in terms Nolan of, does. In terms of how many years you're making films, maybe Christopher Nolan now with Dunkirk has only just reached mm. the Heat period of Michael Mann. So you never know what can happen after... Na- yeah. after Dunkirk with Christopher Nolan is he going to become a Kubrick where they become less films over time but they are absolute st- uh, stunners they are absolute masterpieces or 
is he going to become a Spielberg where more films in rapid quickfire, more bombs than hits? Mm. How many scenes do you think Al Pacino and Robert De Niro had together? Were they in the same... When they're in the same talking to each other or... Two. Yeah, three. (laughs) (laughs) Well, three because of the shootout thing, but they didn't really talk to each other. No, no. When they... Because he stops him in the car. Then they go to the diner. So that's two scenes. Mm. And then the cat and mouse. But for such a film that is, is so much about the tension and the relationship and the effects upon their lives from that relationship, it's crazy to think they only have three scenes together. Mm. one of which lasts 30 seconds then there's the diner scene and the cat and mouse chase mm. it's almost like they did the opposite of what people were hoping for mm. you know these two titans of of hollywood coming together in one film and instead of being given just an entire film of them together which arguably wouldn't have been as interesting um they kept michael Mann actually kept them apart yeah which gives it a, an interesting frisson, as they say in France. And they've done a recent, they've done a film together recently, haven't they? Within the last five or ten years. Yeah, and it absolutely bombed. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember what it was called, and I never saw it. Oh, they did um, Righteous Kill together That's in 2008. It. That's it. Oh, God, it's been ten years then. Because that was meant to be the new, hey, we've got these two guys in the film together, and then no one gave a fucking shit. And it was a buddy cop film, and they spent the entire film together. So maybe it doesn't and work. It didn't work. Maybe it just You can't doesn't. have two stars in orbit for too long, or they just eat each other. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a movie I paid to see. <laughs> Could you watch this again? Yeah, I think I would. I, I love thrillers. I love 90s thrillers specifically. Um, and... I loved the feel of the film. I love the dialogue. I feel like I would want to maybe see it on a big screen rather than watching it on my crappy little like 32-inch TV that's across yeah. the other side of the room. I think that I would want to watch it on a big screen and just kind of lose myself in it. There is something about seeing a film that is... Because I think this film is potentially inaccessible for the regular multiplex cinema goer. For people who are so used to Marvel movies or whatever The Rock is putting out, which are (laughs) fine because people love those movies, but they're not... They don't adhere to the traditional cinematic grammar Hmm. that films like this do. And people always say, you're so snobby with your movies. I'm like, no. Certain films are made in a particular way because they are, quote-unquote, artistic or visually they're visual stories you know certain novels are written in a particular way the great gatsby is a novel so is 50 shades of gray yeah they both have their markets one is arguably more creative with the form Mm. the other one is a story written down in words Mm -hmm. so for people who have only ever seen films like you know, San Andreas or Doctor Strange or Die Hard. I reckon it'd be very difficult for them to sit down and watch this film where it is so subtle and it is so cold and it is so slow. And it's quite cynical and dry. It's yeah. not funny. Apart they, would, from Alpacino. <laughs> they would find it difficult to sit down and remain attentive if they mm. watch it at home. But when you go and watch something in the cinema, you are forced into submission essentially there's nothing you can do there's two things you can do sit and watch 
or fuck off. Mm-hmm. You can't or get your at, phone out, and in which case, get out of the cinema. You can't look at your phone. You shouldn't look at your phone. Yeah. You shouldn't look at your your watch or whatever. Don't eat popcorn because it's loud. But the fact that the room is dark and the only thing really you can see is the screen, it's almost like you switch into, mm. you know, dead submission, dead from the cheeks down. You just engage your brain and your eyes. Yeah. That's why I think it'd be really cool for you to watch it on the big screen because you have no choice but to watch it. <laughs> All right, Clockwork Orange. <laughs> <laughs> and it's weird you said Clockwork Orange because last night I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey again at the cinema. Don't you mean again, 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 again? Again and again and again. It was like the fourth time I've seen it on the big screen. And I appreciate it so much more now that I've seen it on the big screen those, those you know that many times in probably the last... 10 months mm. than I ever did when I used to watch it on DVD because you have no choice but to appreciate how amazing those visuals look 60 foot wide 30 feet high mm. and the one I saw last night was actually the new unrestored cut that Nolan has overseen it's taken from the original uh, film negatives that came out of the camera so it's 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 as close to the original 1968 projection than you'll ever see mm. and it looks amazing wait was that what you had on instagram where it was like it looked really yellow yes like as compared to compared to the blu-ray which is obviously cooled things down uh, yeah i was like oh the blu-ray looks great <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> go and see this movie on the big screen because i think you would i think you would appreciate it a little bit more but also now that you've seen it, you know the shape of the film and you know the speed of it. So you can, you can almost, it's almost like you're, you're connecting the dots in advance mm. and you appreciate the moments just a little bit more. The nuance. Mm. And I won't be quite so obsessed with Val Kilmer and John Voight wearing really bad wigs. Yes. Why was, ugh, like Michael Mann apparently was desperate for John Voight to play this character. So much so that he then got aged up with prosthetics. Why? Why? Just didn't get Anthony to... Hopkins to do it. <laughs> didn't need to be that old. No, stupid. I guess they couldn't have one more middle-aged man in the film. So that was Heat, directed by Michael Mann. Man or man or man. Did you enjoy Heat? How do you feel about 90s thrillers, If even if they are slow and a bit cold? <laughs> get on Twitter, at TornStopsPod. <laughs> and if you like what we do, then subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like film, music, culture, and theatre, head to Trash, which is at movetotrash.co.uk. We're off to looker there. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut! <laughs>